Do you ever wish that God would just write in the sky what you're supposed to do? Do you ever have that, that wish? Father, what am I supposed to do with my life? And then, poof, up in the clouds appears doctor, missionary, homemaker. This is what you should do with your retirement. This is what you should do with your weekends, with your evenings. But did you know that's sort of how God works? Okay, not up in the clouds, not like a magic eight ball or a fortune teller, but God has told us what we're supposed to do. And it's not written in the sky, it's written in the Bible. It's there in Matthew 28. Let me read it to you, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded for you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. That's God's will for our lives, whether we're a doctor or a missionary or a homemaker or whether we're retired. We've been given a mission, a commission, a great commission. So you can break it down really like this. What Jesus is talking about there is to share the good news about Jesus with those who haven't heard it or don't believe it. And secondly, to use the good news about Jesus to build up believers, to teach them. Mission and ministry, that's two of our big M's uh, as a church. Making disciples and making disciples, if you like. That is our mission in life. That is what God has told us to do and it's been given to us by the Lord Jesus. Now, why are we starting off talking about Matthew when actually we're in the book of Exodus? Well, because it's tempting to think that what happens here to Moses is a special case. Now, in many ways, it is a special case, isn't it? I don't know many people who've had conversations with the Almighty in a fiery bird. That's not the sort of norm, is it? But on the other hand, we live in the New Testament. God has revealed himself in an even greater way than he did to Moses through the Lord Jesus. And as believers, we're now treated as friends of God who God has let know what his big plan is. We are part of the big mission to bring all nations, all people, all things under the Lord Jesus. That is our big mission in life. And I'm saying this because in many ways we're going to feel some similarities with Moses and how Moses feels in this passage. Now we're not Moses, okay? We don't part Red Seas and do stuff like that. We shouldn't always read ourselves into the main character in Bible stories. But it's not a coincidence that we'll share some of the feelings and sentiments that Moses has in this passage. Because he has a mission from God, and we have a mission from God too. So let's dig into our passage. First of all, we see God will use Moses to rescue his people. Let me read to you verses 1 to 10, which wasn't read uh, earlier on in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Moses said, surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of my people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now it's easy to miss the wood for the trees here, or miss the wood for the bushes, uh, if you like, in this passage. But this is Moses commissioning by God. Now Moses at this point is 80 years old, okay? And he's just about to begin the job that God had given him all those years back, the job that he was born for. Now I know that we have some 80 plus uh, uh, year olds this, uh, this morning here. Please don't think that age is any barrier to God choosing you to do amazing things. Have you realised actually it could be that God has his most amazing work ahead of you? And you just don't realise it yet. Moses probably was not thinking that this was going to be something that was ahead of him. And younger folk, it also means that we need to not write off older folk. What they might lack in strength and energy, they so often make up for an experience. And Moses now has 40 years more experience than he did last time we met him. For 40 years he's been in the wilderness, shepherding wayward sheep to prepare him to shepherd his wayward people. But Moses, as we meet him here, seems to have almost forgotten this. Perhaps he thought 40 years earlier, you know, well I gave it a go. I failed and now God's written me off. That's it now for the rest of my life. He probably thought, this is it now, I'm done. But he was wrong. God hadn't written him off. God was actually preparing him all those years for something greater. God appears to Moses from the flames of a burning bush. Or really it should be called a non-burning bush, because that's the amazing thing about it. There are plenty of burning bushes, aren't there, in, in deserts and things like that. But the amazing thing here is that the bush is not consumed, it's not burnt up. As an aside, this has often been taken as a picture of God's people. Burning, but not consumed. Or as Paul puts it in the New Testament, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Perhaps that's why God chose this image to appear in. Moses turns aside, though, to see the sight, and a voice speaks to him from in the bush, calling him by name. And Moses replies, he's told to take his sandals off, because the place where he is standing is holy ground. Now the reason it's holy is that God is there. This is God's place. This is actually Mount Sinai, it's also called Mount Horeb, but it's where God will appear to his people later on. It's referred to in verse 1 as the mountain of God. This is God's place that Moses is coming into. And the reason he has to take his sandals off is probably to do with contamination. 
You know, no mixing of the unholy dust on his sandals with the holy ground that he was entering. So he's warned not to come near, as the people will be later when they appear at this very mountain, told to stand up. In other words, it's showing us here that God is holy. He is other. He's not easily approachable. We can't just waltz up to him. But God continues to speak. He speaks to Moses, announcing himself as the God of his father, his true people. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God who met with them and spoke with them. The God who made promises to those people to make them into a great nation. To bless them and to give them the land of Canaan. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, speaks to Moses. And in one sense, it's no, it's no surprise that Moses is a bit afraid. I think you or I would be a bit afraid in those circumstances. He's right to be afraid to look at the face of God. As God will tell him later on in Exodus, you cannot see my face. The man shall not see my face and live. He's got reason to be scared. But God is coming with good news. God tells Moses that he has seen his people's affliction. That he has heard their cry. And that he knows their sufferings. Those words parallel what we saw at the end of chapter 2 if you were here last week. God's heard what's going on. He's seen what's happening. And God announces that he will rescue them. And bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. A wonderful land. A broad and good land. Plenty of space. But he's more specific, isn't he? He tells them exactly which land. Not just any land. The land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. And the Jebusites. In other words, this is the land that he promised to Abraham over 500 years before. And he says he's going to do this by sending Moses. Sending Moses to Pharaoh, in fact. To the palace where he used to live. Moses is to be a rescuer after all. He is God's chosen instrument to rescue his people. God keeps his promises. That's something that we see all the way through the Bible. And so he will act. And Moses will be the go-between, will be the instrument of his rescue. But Moses is not quite as keen as he was before. He's not so sure about this anymore. So Moses begins to question God, and that's our second point. God will use Moses to rescue his people. Now this is the long section that we have read earlier. I'm not going to read it through to us again. But it boils down to five objections that Moses has to being God's instrument to rescue Egypt. And this is where we might feel some sympathy with Moses as we think about our mission that God has given to us. So it would be helpful to see what objections he has and then what answers uh, God gives to him. So his first objection, he says, uh, I'm a nobody, there in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to the people? He may have been a prince before, but now he's a shepherd. Shepherds were abhorrent to the people of uh, Egypt. Moses told us so in Genesis 46. And it seems as though he doesn't even own the sheep. I've never noticed that before. They're not even his sheep. He's not even the owner of the sheep that he's looking after. They're his father-in-law's sheep. And in chapter 5, he seems to have to ask his father-in-law if he can go. So ask for permission if he can leave. So this is no longer the prince of Egypt. This is the minion from Midian. That's what we've got. He's a nobody. And we can feel that too, can't we? Me? Part of the mission? 
<laughs> you've got the wrong girl, you've got the wrong guy. This is not my area. It's, it's a bit outside my comfort zone. This is not who I am. Well, what's God's answer in verse 12? This is what he says. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you, says God. I'll be with you. And a nobody with God is a somebody. He doesn't promise to make it easier. He doesn't promise to make it a smooth ride. And as we'll see, it's not going to be a smooth ride as we go through. But he promises to be with him on the ride. When he's reflecting back on this experience with Joshua in Deuteronomy, he says to Joshua, Is the Lord, is it not the Lord who goes before you? He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. God is with us. He's with us for the whole journey. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He won't leave us high and dry. What he asks us to do might not be easy, but he promises to be with us as we do it. And that echoes what Jesus said in that great commission we had read earlier. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us as we go and do the mission, as we fulfill the great commission. And what he asks Moses to do is have faith. Do you notice there that the sign he gives him, it's not like the other signs that we're going to see. Those are sort of then and there signs, you know, like a, a serpent becoming a snake, be, uh, a stick becoming a snake, and all those sorts of things. Moses' sign requires faith. Because he says, actually, the way that you'll know that I've sent you is that you'll worship God on this mountain. Actually, it's looking forwards, isn't it? He has to trust that God will get him there. That's the sign. Trust me, I'll get us here. That'll be the sign that we, we've done it. Now you think, well, okay, that's answered Moses' objection. But he's still not content. He challenges the Lord again in verse 13. He says, I don't know enough. He says, suppose they ask me your name. What am I to tell them? Moses is worried. They'll ask him a question he doesn't know the answer to. Now bear in mind, Moses was brought up in an Egyptian palace. And he's been living with the Midianites for 40 years. It actually might be that he doesn't know all that much of the ins and outs of the God of Abraham. He will do. He's going to go on and write Genesis, isn't he, and all the other books there. But at this point, he may not. He's concerned about what they'll think if he doesn't have all the right answers. There's probably also uh, at stake here the character of God. When they ask you a name, what should I tell them you're like? As we've been seeing in Exodus, names are significant. They mean something. So what's God's answer, verse 14? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to the people of Israel, I am ascending to you. I am who I am. Or footnotes, I will be who I will be. It's normally shortened to I am in Hebrew. It's four letters in the Hebrew alphabet, Y-H-W-H. It was probably pronounced something like Yahweh. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Old Bibles, it sometimes has Jehovah, same word. It's hard to know exactly what it was pronounced like because Jews refused to say it out loud. They thought it was too holy to speak. So they used their donai instead. They said Lord when it came to it in the Bible. 
And in English Bibles, it's replaced by the word Lord in small capital letters. When you see that, it's this uh, word that we're talking about. The New Testament quotes the Greek Old Testament in that way too. So when you read Lord in the New Testament, often that's referring to uh, God's name. So when we see that Jesus is Lord, that's actually a much bigger statement than you might first think. But the phrase, I am, can signify all sorts of different things, can't it? Some people think it talks about God's self-existence, you know, I am. Or God's lack of other things to define him. As though, you know, what, could, what thing could he use to describe God when he was there before all things? But I think it's best to see it in the context of Exodus. God's previous answer, if you think about it, was, I will be with you. That's the same phrase as we've got here, really, just adapted. If you want to know what my character is like, it's almost as though God is saying, watch ahead. I will be what I will be. And in fact, so much of what God says here is that I will this, I will that. It's as though God is saying, if you want to know my character, my name, it will be revealed in my actions. And if you think about it, God's name, Yahweh, the Lord, is forever linked with his actions here in rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. So that is God's name, that's what he's talking about. But sometimes we won't know all the answers, will we, when people ask us questions. It could be scary. Imagine being a pastor and being asked questions that you don't know the answer to. You used to do Q&As and things. And do you know what? Sometimes the answer is we don't know. And that's okay. We can only know what God has revealed. That's what we're seeing here in Exodus. God reveals himself. There are some things that God has chosen to show us. And there will be answers. And there are some things that God has chosen not to show us. And we won't have answers now. And that's okay. That really is okay. But God's answer to here goes, uh, to Moses goes further still. He's not just saying, oh, it's okay, it will work out, you can tell them this. He points Moses to what he will do, to what God will do, the wonders that he will perform, the rescue that he will accomplish, the amazing blessings they will receive by the hands of the Egyptians. And that's worth remembering too. Because in the end, when people ask us questions, it's not about impressing people. And Moses isn't out there to impress people with his knowledge. It's about God working a miracle. Actually, that's what the main answer is. And then Moses pointing to him. That's what he's saying. But Moses still isn't happy. He comes up with another excuse. They'll reject him for verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. This is probably in the background of his thinking all the way through this. And this is his central excuse. It's the middle one of the five. Moses' experience 40 years before had no doubt scarred him. He's damaged. Once bitten, twice shy. He tried to do the right thing 40 years ago. Even if it was in a foolish way. And he ended up hurt and rejected. That was how that story ended. And that's a common experience, isn't it, as we seek to share the gospel with folk outside the church who can be rejected. And unfortunately, it's a common experience in the church, isn't it, as we seek to love and disciple one another. 
I lost count of the number of times that people have shared with me experiences of being burned in this way by other Christians. Did you notice, actually, out of all these objections, it's only the first one that actually deals with Pharaoh. The other one actually deals with his own people. He's more worried about what they'll think than what the people on the outside will think. He's been burned by his own people before, and that makes this hard. And many of us share that experience. Ministry to people within the church, often in that sense, can feel harder than mission to people outside the church. We're scared of being shot down. We're scared of being rejected. So what's God's answer? Well, he gives him three signs. A staff that can turn into a snake. His hand will become leprous. And he'll be able to turn water into blood. And these three mini-miracles foreshadow the plagues that are to come. They deal with animals, with diseases, and with nature itself. That's really what we get in those uh, things. All the plagues, by the last plague, follow that pattern. They fit into one of those three things. Moses will be able to show in a small way what will happen in a big way in the weeks to come. That's the signs that he's given. But how does that fit with us? I mean, we don't have snake snaps. We don't have miracles <laughs> that we can do, or leprous limbs, I shouldn't have done the tongue twisting here. We, we haven't got those things, have we, to prove our genuineness. We can't just sort of do those on tap, can we? And sometimes that actually means we'll be rejected and hurt. But if you think about it, even Moses with his signs actually ends up rejected and hurt again. There are at least ten times as we go forward from this that the people grumbled or rebelled against Moses. Even though he could do these amazing signs, the people still rejected him. They still uh, didn't want him as their leader. In fact, that's going to happen in the very next chapter. We're going to see that next week. Even if we could turn water to blood, it wouldn't guarantee that people would listen to us, either inside the church or outside the church. Jesus turned water into wine. And people still rejected him. Actually, part of what we take from this here is that rejection is part of the, the part of the burden that we bear as believers. That's just part of what we do. But it's still not good enough for Moses. So his next excuse is that I'm no good at speaking. Whether Moses actually had a speech impediment, we'll never know. But I can tell you that after 40 years with the Midianites, it's likely that his Egyptian language is a bit rusty. It could be that he thinks that he's expected to convince Pharaoh somehow to let the people go. You know, when I get there, I won't come up with the right arguments, I won't come up with the right words, or I will 20 minutes after I've left, or about 2 o'clock in the morning. That's normally how it works with me when I have those sorts of discussions. We can have sympathy here, can't we? Making disciples requires speaking. We have to talk. And some of us are not great talkers. Some of us struggle to find the right words. Let me rephrase that. All of us struggle to find the right words, don't we, at times. We can let the responsibility fall back on us, can't we, and think, well, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm more of a hindrance than a help? We have those worries, don't we? What does God say in verse 11? He says this. Then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, teaching you what you should speak. I will be with your mouth. Slightly different phrase, isn't it, from before? 
Because it's like he's saying, I'm not leaving you alone in this. And while we're at it, who made your mouth? I did, says God. Do you think I'm making a mistake coming to you? Do you think I don't know what I'm choosing? I made you. I made your mouth. I made your stammering tongue. It's supposed to be like that. I made it like that, says God. Yours is the mouth that I want to use. I made it for this purpose. Do you notice here that he doesn't deny Moses' comments? Now maybe Moses is being overly humble or awkward. But perhaps he's not. Maybe God wants to use somebody who is rubbish at speaking to do this. Remember we said last time that part of Moses' problem was that he was too strong. Well now he seemingly knows that he's not strong. You see, God didn't want to use a vigorous 40-year-old. Yeah, 40-year-olds can still be vigorous. Not quite there yet, but almost. doesn't want to use a vigorous 40-year-old with a Batman complex. No, he wants to use a, an 80-year-old assistant shepherd with an inferiority complex. That's who God's going to use to do this. He wants to use the weak and the meek to shame the strong. That's what we saw last time. And the same goes for us, doesn't it? Are you rubbish at speaking to people? Great. Then you'll depend on God's strength and not your own. That's what Moses will do. But it's still not enough. So Moses, last excuse. Somebody else would do it better. Verse 13. Please send somebody else. This is the only point in the story where God gets angry at Moses. He's not saying, don't do it, Lord, don't rescue them. But he's saying, send somebody else. There's someone else who could be a better choice. The thing is, though, we don't get the choice, do we, in this? Could you imagine if a soldier said to his commanding officer, no, I don't want that assignment. Can you give it to somebody else? That would be shocking, wouldn't it, if a soldier said that to his commanding officer. But this is a creature telling his creator that he knows better than he does. I know there's someone better. Send somebody else. If you think about it, though, we do the same, don't we, when we opt out of the Great Commission. I know that you picked me to do this, but there are other people. Send them. They do it better. Perhaps, again, he was thinking of past experiences of this, as he tried to do it before. Please don't put put me through this again, Lord. I don't want to face this. But God persists. Even when Moses wants to give up, God doesn't give up on Moses. Instead, he puts forward Aaron, Moses' brother, to come help. In fact, he's already sent him. Verse 14 is present tense. He's already on the way at this point. God will speak to Moses, Moses will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to the people and to Pharaoh. God will be with his mouth and with Aaron's mouth as they speak. We will be with both of them. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that even with us, we're not alone in the mission, are we? There are others with us. We don't bear the burden of the Great Commission alone, do we? We have brothers, we have sisters who will help us in our mission together. Ministry and mission are group projects. They're family projects that we do together. That's why he gives it to a group of people. He doesn't give it to an individual. He gives it to us all. Well, we're finally done with the excuses. God dismisses Moses. He takes his staff and sets off back to his family. But it's not over yet. And so our last point. God will use even Pharaoh to rescue his firstborn. Let me read to you uh, chapter 4, verses 18 
uh, to 26. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, uh, Israel is my firstborn son. And uh, I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Moses returns to Jethro, and seemingly has to ask permission to go. His request seems a little bit deceptive, doesn't it? So we're not sure whether Jethro knows exactly what he's agreeing to. Jethro agrees though, and the Lord speaks to Moses and tells him to return as the people who are seeking his life are dead. The statute of limitations, if you like, has run out, and now Moses can return without fear of being punished for the murder of that Egyptian some 40 years earlier. Moses takes his wife and sons and puts them on a donkey and sets back off to Egypt. He takes his staff with him, a sign that he's listened to God, and he plans to do what God has said. And then God speaks to Moses again and reveals more of the plan on the way. Part of God driving out the Egyptians with a mighty hand will be hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now we're going to deal with this later on when it actually happens, but for now it's enough to see that Pharaoh's reactions, far from thwarting God's plan, are actually achieving God's plan. They're within it. God intends for there to be ten plagues. Pharaoh will not give up a plague seven, or whatever. God will make sure of that. He will go the distance, and God will make that happen. Because if you think about it, the Exodus story wouldn't quite be as big and dramatic, would it, if Moses went to Pharaoh on the first day and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, all right then, (laughs) off you go. There wouldn't really be a story to tell, would there? No display of God's power and glory in the way that actually will be seen here, that's known throughout all the world, throughout all of history. So God is going to make sure that that happens. The way, though, that God will do this is, uh, sorry, the way that God uh, speaks of this, though, at this point in the Bible is pretty staggering. God reveals that Israel is his firstborn son. God reveals himself here as father for the first time in the Bible. And here we have God calling someone for the first time his son. And here it's the children of Israel, the offspring of Abraham. They are his firstborn son, his special privileged child. But God's firstborn son is in slavery to Pharaoh. So God gives Moses an ultimatum to deliver. Pharaoh is to let God's firstborn son go, or he will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. A warning of that tenth plague to come, it will get to the tenth one. If Pharaoh won't let God's firstborn son go, then Pharaoh's own firstborn, his heir, will die. That's the message that Moses is to deliver. But there's a snag. Before he gets there, something very strange happens. Let me read to you verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, 
the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All clear? <laughs> this is probably one of the weirdest and most debated parts of the Old Testament. I know that every every passage, oh, this is the hardest one, but this is particularly weird, isn't it? Part of the problem is the difficulty in translating it. Moses is nowhere mentioned in these verses. It just says he and him. So it could be Moses, or in the immediate context, it could be the firstborn son. That's what we've just been talking about i.e. Moses' son, Gershom. Most modern commentators plump for Moses. But to me that makes little sense. Why would God call Moses, give him specific instructions, on the way tell him more of what he's to do, and then seek to kill him? It makes far more sense here that God would seek to kill Gershom, the firstborn son. Mostly because in the verses that precedes it, that is how God's wrath is being expressed. His anger at Pharaoh will result in the death of his firstborn son. His anger at the Egyptians will result in the death of their firstborn sons. And the only reason the firstborn sons of the Israelites don't die is that a substitute is provided. In other words, in Exodus, God's wrath on everyone is expressed in the death of their firstborn sons. And Moses here is no exception. It prefigures the tenth plague and the Passover, but it also prefigures the cross in the New Testament. God's wrath is expressed in the death of his own firstborn son. Not Israel at that point, but Christ. God pours out his wrath on a substitute, but in that case it is Christ. His blood atones for sin and propitiates, turns away God's anger. And that's what we see here as well. A circumcision takes place, and the bl- uh, and there's blood, and with the blood, Zipporah touches his feet. That's all it says. The same word touch is used in Exodus 12:22. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. The bridegroom of blood comment is obscure but it can refer to any male relative related by marriage. The words used of Jethro in verse 18. But it points us here to the blood being the significant part. It's the blood shed and applied that averts God's anger. Now whether the anger kindled was from Moses in verse 14, or from Gershom not being circumcised, we're not told. But we are told the solution. Blood shed and applied. And again, in Moses and his children's case, it's a woman who saves the day. Moses has always been saved by women, all the way through. We don't hear of Zipporah again until he meets with Jethro again in verse, oh, sorry, chapter 18. So it's possible actually she stops here and doesn't go with him. Perhaps that's part of the burden that Moses has to bear. But here, he's rescued by his wife as she applies the blood uh, to her son. Moses is cheered, though, by meeting his brother Aaron at Sinai on the way back. He fills Aaron in on all that they've done together, and together they go to the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron reports all the words to the elders, they perform the signs, and the initial response is great. They believe. 
They rejoice that the Lord has seen their affliction and they worship. That's how this section ends. It means they're to fall down prostrate on the floor. They're bowled over by God's condescension to come to their aid. God is coming to rescue them. And so they know what they must do. God has told them what they must do. It's not written in the sky, but it was written in the flames of a burning bush. They're to trust God's Redeemer to rescue them. It won't be plain sailing, as we'll see, but God has given them a mission to do. He's given Moses a commission to do, and it's their job to get on with it, with God's help. And it's the same for us this morning, isn't it? There's some complicated bits in this passage. But really, the lesson is to get on with the mission that God has given us. Knowing that by Moses, God is with us, even to the very end, as we take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we're so sorry that so often we're like Moses and we try and make excuses. Father, you've told us what you want us to do. Father, we pray that you'd help us to get on with it. Father, we pray we wouldn't do that in our own strength, thinking that we can solve everything, thinking that we know everything. But Father, help us, humble us, Father, as you did with Moses, that you might get the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.